What's up, everyone? Coach Casey with the Parisi Speed School back for another week of the Parisi Podcast. If you listened to the last podcast episode, you heard a snippet from our mentorship Q&A forum. So we do these weekly Q&As in, in, in the spring. I call them semesters. So in the spring semester, it was a goal of ours to have 12 phenomenal guest Q&As. And this podcast episode is no different. It falls right in line with those. We had Coach Tom Mylinski. We call him Coach Milo is his nickname. He is a 20 plus year, I think he even goes into a story how he's been a strength coach for over 25 years, but he's a veteran of the NFL. He's a veteran of the NCAA. He came in to talk to our mentorship about team training, principles of team training, and we obviously picked his brain about career growth because the guy has done it and excelled every step of the way. It's a phenomenal conversation. Coach Milo goes into amazing detail, talks a lot about how to succeed in college strength conditioning, how to succeed as a professional strength coach and his tips for strength coaches along the way, trying to push their career. It's a phenomenal episode. We were so lucky to have Coach come in and talk to our mentorship. Um, and we do talk team training as well. Obviously, he's done it at a very high level, so we do dive into that. But anytime we can have a guy who's done it at the pro level for decades, it's, it's an honor for us. So um, our mentorship Q&A is phenomenal. Um, it's one of the best things I think we do in our mentorship where we can just have these nice candid conversations. And if you feel so inclined, we do have a free week of the mentorship. So I'm going to put the link in the show note. It's a free week of the mentorship that we created. The topic is actually on pure versus overall acceleration. We talk about the two, how to program it, um, some of the ways we utilize the different programming in our Parisi sessions. Um, And that's really what the mentorship is about. Our next fall mentorship doesn't start until Labor Day weekend, September 5th. Um, that's the Monday after Labor Day weekend, or I should say the Monday of Labor Day weekend, I guess. But that's when our fall mentorship starts. We realize it is kind of a ways away. So we said, hey, let's put a week together for anyone to download at any time and be a part of it, take a, take some great information away. So if you want to check that out, I'm going to put the link in the show notes. And I guess I'm just going to hand it over to Coach here on the other side of the jingle. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Um, but if you could, Coach, can you start with just a little background, like a little introduction on who you are, what you do, how you kind of got into it, and, and we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, you know what? Um, probably the best way to, to start it is that understand that I'm a son of a coach. So I kind of grew up, you know, I was like the, the gum on my dad's shoe. My dad was the, you know, high school football coach. He was the high school track and field coach. He was the high school strength and conditioning coach. He was the high school wrestling coach. So wherever he went, I went. And so... I really had no choice as a, as a kid, you know, I was always hanging out. Literally, if you saw where I live, you know, my house is literally right across the street from the practice field. So I would walk across the street and then I would be at the practice fields and then I would continue a little bit further and go to my high school. So I, I literally had no choice. And that's really how I grew up, you know, and I grew up in upstate New York talking about snow. So I really know what snow is. I'm you know downplaying it, but I truly know what snow is in upstate New York, but literally, um, I mean, just being around, you know, and, and, you know, just being around athletics all the time. So when I grew up, like the high school, you know, athletes were like my heroes, you know, so I was the ball boy and I used to go scouting with my dad. We'd play Friday night when I was, you know, I'd be a water boy or ball boy. Then I'd go scout with my dad on Saturday night. And then I'd go out for, you know, they'd go out and drink beer after, and I would do sawdust bowling and drink root beers and eat a lot of food, you know, so that was just kind of, growing up in the coaching environment was something I kind of always did. And it was, it was normal, you know, it's uh, 
apple tree. It's, you know, that was table talk for us, you know, and then, so obviously I grew up, I wanted to be an athlete, you know, and so uh, where I grew up, um, I was very fortunate. I was a, a track athlete as well. I was a thrower. So much like Bill, that's how Bill and I originally connected. Bill was a javelin thrower. I was actually a shot put and discus thrower and a hammer thrower. And I went to the University of Tennessee on a dual sport scholarship. So uh, UT was real uh, infamous at that time for their dual sport sports and that, you know, track and football was the big one. So, you know, kind of the people there that kind of were the trendsetters there were Willie Galt and Anthony Hancock, Sam Grady. And then when I went there, we, you know, I think we won, you know, obviously I went there for football as well, but I was also, you know, we won, you know, two to three indoor SEC track and field championships, indoor and outdoor. We were NCAA champs in track and field in 1991 and there was about seven to eight of us that that did both sports so carl pickens alvin harper you know they all placed in the high jump there was um you know uh harlan davis won the 100 and 200 we are four by one team you know had two of the four two of the four people on that were also football players so there, you know we it was it was kind of like a really great time to go to tennessee and then obviously you know playing football at tennessee was great because i always got out of spring ball you know, and that was the best thing to participate in track and field. You know, if you scored in the SEC indoor meet, you get out of spring ball. So that was a goal for all of us to get the hell out of spring ball, you know. And so and so really, I mean, if you're a football player, I mean, what else you do? You, you lift weights, you, you know, you throw shot or sprint. I mean, what a great way to play football, you, you know, to get ready for football. So, you know, not only do we have great track teams, we have great football teams. And then, you know, I was I was very you know fortunate. I got drafted in the fourth round by the Cowboys. And I ended up playing nine years in the NFL. And then along the way, um, I, I met an individual at the University of Pittsburgh when I played for the Steelers. His name was Buddy Morris. And so Buddy was a strength coach when Johnny Majors was there. Johnny Majors was my head football coach at Tennessee. And so I, I met Buddy, said, hey, listen, would you mind? I said, listen, I, the Steelers at that time were all high intensity, meaning it's really medium intensity, but it was all machine-based program. It was the old Chet Furman, Dan Riley program. And so you know, being a, a thrower, you know, I was really into the Olympic lifts and powerlifting. So I asked Buddy, I said, hey, do you mind if I come lift here occasionally? He's like, no, I'd love you to. So, you know, I, I met Buddy. And then so I would go train in the off season at Pitt. And, you know, I just I kind of be, befriended Buddy. And then yeah, I remember the instance I had kind of my first really big interaction with him. I said, hey, let me ask you this question. I said, listen, my Olympic lifts really suck. I said, can you help me out? And he said, stop doing them. I go, what do you mean stop doing them? He's like, well, stop doing them. He goes, you got to raise your level of absolute strength. He goes, that's what Louis Simmons would say. I'm like going, okay, well, that kind of makes sense. I said, okay, well, here's the deal. I don't want to stop doing them. Can I retain them? And then can I just, can, can I do my absolute strength stuff and, and just retain them? He's like, absolutely. He said, let's do that. So about, I don't know, a month and a half later, I went back and I tested my Olympic lifts and I just retained light loads. Okay. And I PR'd on all of them. So I, it, to me, it was like a smack in my face. I realized right now that, Hey, all strengths are based off of absolute strength, especially I was trying to develop strength speed at that time, being an Olympic lifter, I was being an offensive lineman. So obviously absolute strength was really important for me. So that was kind of buddies in our initial relationship. And then ever since that buddy and I have, you know, buddies, my primary mentor in the strength and conditioning field. And, you know, that, that led to multiple trips to Westside Barbell and, you know, really kind of led us to, you know, both, you know, learning from Charlie Francis and that and then me working for Buddy. And that's kind of how that whole, you know, how, how it kind of all started. And so, you know, 
I really thank him. And then when Buddy, when I retired from the NFL, I started working with the Cleveland Browns when Buddy was there. So we just kind of, you know, picked back up and I obviously went in, helped them. You know, I took care of the old line D line. I did a lot of the, you know, strategic hand fighting, we'll call it punch punch, you know, as well as helping obviously in the weight room and, you know, all the tactical work. And then kind of from there, it's, you know, I, I've been, you know, a strength and conditioning coach. Oh, I don't know, 20 years, you know, uh, this is my second year out last year. I took a year off. But it's, you know, mainly I've been, you know, in the NFL as a head strength coach for about 15 years. So, um, you know, that's kind of where I did. Now I'm currently working for a company called BioCore. And BioCore, uh, we handle all the NFL injury and performance data, as well as we're, we deal with a lot of player health and safety initiatives. So really how I look at it, I'm just, I'm working with all 32 teams instead of one now. So it's, it's to me, it's a difference between influencing and impacting. You know, so it's it's great. Uh, you know, nobody can yell at me anymore being, a you know, kind of <laughs> private industry. I go in, I give them the information and then whatever decisions they want to make, they go. But, you know, we you know, then they can you know, uh, they can handle. But, um, you know, I, I'm really kind of enjoying the, the, the new transition. It allows me to have, um, you know, more a more impactful relationship with everybody within in the NFL. Yeah. I mean, and also I mean, you're, you're an athlete, like it keeps you close to the game that you love and, and you're, you're an arm's length away at all times, which is phenomenal. I'm sure for you as well. Yeah. You know what you, you're, I'm dealing with the same issues I dealt with as a player. I, I'm just not dealing with the athletes on a day-to-day -day basis, but really, you know, it's, you're looking at, you're still trying to make the game a better game because, you know, the game of football is an, is an awesome game. And, you know, look at it. I mean, there's you know, XFL, USFL, NFL. I mean, there's college football. I mean, people are football crazy. You can't get enough football, but it's always, always about improving the game, making the game safer, you know, and that's kind of how I view it is that I'm trying to do my small part in, in the, you know, in the, in the football world. That's awesome. I love that story too. I know I was on a couple calls with you and Bill and, and Bill speaks very highly of you. And I had never known your, your story. And like, I really, I'm glad you shared that. Cause I just think that it's one, I didn't know you played for the, the, the best team in the NFL, the Dallas Cowboys are the best. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, that was my favorite team growing <laughs> up as a kid. Go That's gotta there. be so cool. That's gotta be so oh, cool. Yeah. And so I got drafted in the fourth round and, you know, meeting Roger Stallback and, you know, meeting, you know, and I got hurt initially right away. I actually was with the Cowboys, got hurt, got released. And then I ended up going back and starting going back. So it was really kind of like I had, you know, it was awesome closure, you know, and then playing with those guys on the offensive line. I mean, really, you got the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Dallas Cowboys. There's not two better offensive lines in the history of the NFL. So really kind of to, to play on those offensive lines was just, you know, was really cool. That is cool. Um, and then, I mean, obviously, like the, the transition from athlete to strength conditioning coach. So I was going to ask you, that was one of the things I had on my list today was, you know, how, yeah. how you got into the field of, of strength conditioning. Cause everyone at the college level, professional level, everyone always has a really unique story. Um, yeah. hear how you kind of transition from athlete to coach and, and now your role, um, you know, at, at the kind of the top working with all the teams, I think that's a really cool, really cool transition. Um, and maybe this is, you know, this is kind of a good first place to jump off here. We talk about team training, but I, I always value some of the career input that um, can come along with these conversations. If, you know, the relationship pieces is strength conditioning, like to my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, like most positions in, in strength conditioning, even in private public sector, both 
are probably filled before they're even posted based off of the relationships and, and the personal connections that people who are doing the hiring have. Um, in your, in, in, you know, even if this is something that you've done in the past, like what would be maybe your best tip or a couple tips for a coach to build those relationships, but build them in a genuine way so that, that they're honest, right? Like your relationship with Buddy Morris was like genuine, like, can you help me improve as an athlete? Like that there's nothing more genuine than, than actually trying to help and better myself. But when, if you're a young strength conditioning coach trying to make it, you know, getting a paid job in strength conditioning, let alone, you know, making it 15, 25 years, what would be some of those tips that you would say to, to the young bucks in the industry? Yeah. You know what? Uh, it, that's a really good question because, um, you know, I was very fortunate because of, you know, the role that I was in, obviously, as a player. You know, the biggest thing you can do is that this is, and so my son is a strength and conditioning coach, okay? And, and this is the advice that I gave him. When he came to me and told me that he wanted to be a strength and conditioning coach, I go, are you got to be kidding me? I go, why do you want to be a strength and conditioning coach? I said, you see what I deal with on a daily basis. He goes, no, you know, again, so it's, you know, what you teach a father-son, you teach you teach his son, you know, so it's kind of, again, it's apple tree is what we got going on. So I allowed him, I said, okay, here's the deal. I said, if you want to be a SNC, and this, this is what I believe when I was, when I was coming out in the industry, I said, I was an ex-athlete, but what did I have to do to make myself on par with the people already within the profession? Well, my undergraduate degree was in kinesiology because I knew I wanted to be a strength coach when I went to Tennessee. Oh, cool. Okay. And then, so when I was playing for the Steelers, I actually got my master's in exercise physiology at the University of Pittsburgh. And then I had to be certified. I had to be, you know, CSCS at that point. So I had to make myself on par. But the key is, is that how are you going to, you know, create separation between yourself and others? And so I told my son, it's okay, here's the deal. And here's where I feel the, the NSCA and the CSCCA have failed. And, and I tell them openly and honestly is that there's no licensure within, within our business. And so I told him, I said, listen, you need to have a special. I said, because if I'm a head strength and conditioning coach, I need to hire people that are, that are like specific tools. Not everybody can be a hammer in the weight room. Okay, so every, you know, so the role of how, and I, I got a kind of a lot of stories going in here, but you know, I've from being, you know, helping Buddy just being working with the big guys to, you know, having now be the head guy and really have to work, you know, sprinting technique and, you know, sprint profiling with the skill guys to, you know, working with all the rehab and then, you know, with the chronic rehabs. And then I've had to go into the sports science department. So you really got it. You got to find a way to separate yourself. So what I told him, I said, listen, here's what you can do. You get a license. So you can be a PT, a PTA, a PT, an ATC, or he took the RD route. All right. And so to me, that creates separation because I, I would also, one of the first hires I had in Jacksonville was Josh Hanks, who's currently the head strength coach with uh, the Minnesota Vikings. Josh is a he's a dual role. He's an RD and a strength coach. Somebody else I hired is now the head guy with the LA Raiders, AJ Nibel, and AJ is a PTA and a strength coach. So obviously when Josh was here with me, he was an RD and he handled that because what's great about being an RD is that you have that, you know, hands-on relationship, you know, um, uh, you know, with the players on a day-to-day -day basis. And so they really can't get away from you, you know? And so that's great that you're there. When AJ was here, AJ was like my, he was more of our transitional strength and conditioning coach. So to me, there's acute rehab, which happens in the training room. And then there's the chronic rehab approach, which is, 
you know, I, I call it plan B. So plan C is in the training room. Plan B is that they're transitioning back to the weight room and weight room is plan A. So, you know, having that transitional guy to help smooth that, that interaction back into the weight room was key. So any way that you can kind of create separation and, you know, and, and show your value outside that, because really, you know, our profession, it's becoming a specialty. I mean, look at science, look how it's evolving. I mean, hey, you got to be dialed in with, you know, the GPS, you got to be dialed in with force plates, you know, it, it's all out there now. Sprint profiling is a real big thing mm -hmm. going on now. You know, 1080 sprints, you got to be, you got to be, um, you know, proficient in a lot. And if you want to be a head guy, you kind of really got to know it all. You don't have to be, you know, um, completely proficient with everything, but, you know, you got to be able to direct your staff. I love that. That's really good career advice. And, and um, I appreciate you going into that level of detail because it is, I, you know, my background is from com in a commercial gym, managing 37 personal trainers um, in a Parisi speed school within that. And it's very much the same concept where if I'm hiring a trainer, like I want the person who is really good at shoulder rehab um, and can see our outpatient physical therapy members back into general fitness. So I want someone who's special, like who's really good and specializes in post-op ACL. Um, yep. Someone who's really interested in on the Parisi side, like working with just kids versus adults. It is crazy how that, that career advice rings true among so many different spectrums of human performance, health, fitness, et cetera. Yeah, no doubt. No, you're right on. You got to specialize. You know, there's just, there's, and, and, and you can't know everything. And I mean, and there's, there's a bit of humility with it, you know, within everything as well. And, you know, that's why I always try to hire people that are smarter than me. So I look really smart when I, you know, as a, as a head guy. For sure. That's something I've learned from our mutual friend, Bill, you know, you got to surround yourself yeah. with, with good people and you got to surround yourself with people who make you the dumbest person in the room. You know, that's, the, that's the whole goal. I've got a list of questions here, coach, but I do want to open it up. Um, see if anyone, I just asked if anyone has any questions, they can put them in the chat, but if anyone has any questions, feel free to unmute yourself, um, you know, and shout them out. If not, I've got, I've got a list. I always come prepared with a list of questions. You guys are pretty easy. You know, and this, I'm, I am guilty of this because I was on a Q and a, um, like a lecture in Q and a last Friday, um, Atlantic Health Hospitals, the our medical partner in New Jersey, they they do a lunch and learn every couple months, and I just kind of was like a fly on the wall listening to one of the PTs talk about the shoulder, um, you know, and it was a really cool presentation. But I literally just sat there and just like was a fly on the wall, and I felt bad because I didn't have like any. I said, okay, question time, and I just kind of sat there. But I totally get it. Sometimes it's nice to just absorb and listen, and um, you know, coach, we'll keep it we'll keep it easy on the ears. But one thing I, I did want to ask you about, because this was something, um, gosh, when I first met you, we were on those team training calls with Bill and you talked about, and it was, it was one of those things that it was simple, profound, and it really hit home for me. Um, just talking about the developing athlete, right? Like the high school kid, I think of like the high school freshman who's like 14, 135 pounds soaking wet, you know, like the noodly kid that just hit their growth spurt. Um, and is like, yeah, I'm playing high school sports now. In um, talking about what, I guess, like the repetitive nature that they need to get strong, right? We talked about like how, uh, like one of the biggest keys to athletic performance is like the top of the pyramid, like absolute strength. But building that with a developing kid, I, I think is, 
it's it's simple but it's hard right or i guess it's simple but it's not easy because the kid is like no movement comp like they're just they're like a wet noodle um can you talk a little bit about that developmental aspect and then i would also love to to hear your stories like if you had any like pro guys that you could tell like maybe we're just freak athletes but we're just not like they didn't have that athletic foundation um even at the professional level yeah, I mean, just I, I, I was so I was in Philadelphia this weekend. I also met with Bill Knowles. And so I don't know if you guys know him, but that would be somebody I think uh, Casey would be great to get on the podcast as well or yeah. somebody that people can research. So uh, how, I believe and I know he believes is that, you know, we really, you know, have did a, a grave injustice to our young athletes by getting rid of physical education. You know, and really just understanding these basic elemental, you know, movement patterns between you know, uh, pushing, pulling, jumping, sprinting, you, you know, carrying, you know, pulling, climbing. I mean, all the basic movements is that we don't, we're not proficient at them. And so it's, it's really frustrating. So, you know, understand that movement is the number one element governing all sports. So with kids, I, I would just make sure they know how to move and they can slow down. If you look overseas, or in America, everybody wants to jump high, but nobody knows how to land. Everybody wants to throw far, but nobody knows how to how to how to receive a med ball. So really, you know, we always we always talk about you know everybody wants to see the box jump on you know YouTube, but nobody wants to talk about hey how fast can you decelerate? I mean, to me, that's sport. Triple flexion is sport. So teach kids how to decelerate, how to absorb their body force, and just how to be efficient practical movers. Uh, a story that we had when um, I was, I'm not going to, I don't want to give away who it was, but this ended up being a, um, uh, he, he is not in the Hall of Fame, but could be considered a Hall of Fame candidate in the NFL. In college, uh, we had this athlete, and this athlete was a first round draft pick in the NFL. And then when we, when we get, when we went in, he couldn't skip. And so obviously he missed this critical period, his whole developmental period within his life. So we don't know where it was. We didn't work with him very long because he was leaving and we were coming in. And so, you know, we don't know from, you know, what critical period he missed or, you know, was it, was it happening, you know, where, where was it, you know, affecting his movement patterns because we didn't have enough time, but we were completely blown away that this great athlete couldn't skip. So I had one, the, one of my assistants that was with him, we taught him how to skip and how we teach how to skip is a great way is that you hold hands and you skip and then they feel the movement and he learned how to skip through holding hands with one of our assistants. And it was great that, you know, here you have as a pro athlete that, you know, missed a, you know, obviously a, a very big movement competency. That is it always blows my mind when you hear stories about someone who makes it to the, the pinnacle of their sport and somewhere along the bottom, yeah. like they just missed. And it, it's, in a way, it's almost more impressive that they were able to just function at such a high level without that core building block. Um, that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, look at all, all the mock posture drills that we do. They're all skipping related. I mean, yeah. and so, like I said, we didn't, we, we didn't work with him. You know, we only helped him in like his combine training, but, you know, we really ultimately don't know what effect it had, but I think he ended up playing 10 plus years in the NFL and had a great career, but it was, um, it was really cool. It was just a, you know, you always see that you always find athletes that are just, you know, missing critical periods. And, you know, I, I think, you know, part of our jobs is that, you know, we always want to develop 
uh, not only we want, I look at it, great football players, but we want a great, we want to develop great football athletes or great sport athletes. And I think ultimately, if you're, if you're a great athlete, you're going to succeed in the sport that you're in. hundred percent, hundred percent. I come from the land of Northern Vermont, where if you're the best running back, you're also probably the best at hockey. You're probably the shortstop on the baseball team. And it's not because you're any good at the sport, but it's just because you're a sick athlete and the talent pool is, is relatively small, but it just shows how well you can stand out if you're fast, if you're strong, if you're, you understand movements and you can get like, you, I love how you said like triple flexion is sports. Cause we always talk yeah. about triple extension, triple extension, but you got to flex before you can extend. And no doubt. Like that that's always missed in, in a, in a very concentrically driven industry at times. It's, it's yeah. missed. in Casey, and you look at like early specialization, I mean, you become very good at very little. I mean, I, uh, so if you guys search, if you're interested, I wrote one of my master's theses was on the development of the Russian conjugate sequence system. And really, so I looked at concurrent methodology and conjugate methodology. And really, when the, you know, when the Russians developed their military, okay, and they found it was a very, you know, it was fantastic for developing their, their athletes. You know, they used that multifaceted approach where they became, you know, they became above average in everything. And, and really, that's what we have to get back to, you know, is if you want to have, and, and this is, I'm a father, okay, all three of my kids are division one athletes, but I never spread, I never really stressed the sport with my kids. I just wanted my kids to have fun and grow up and be, and really try to learn and figure out what they wanted to do and kind of just try to be good at everything. And, you know, my, my job as a dad was to help foster that approach, you know, as they, as they went along, you know, not knowing what they wanted to do, because, you know, uh, I wanted them to be their own individual. I didn't want them to feel pressured to be an athlete like dad. I wanted, I wanted them to find their way, you know, and that's just, you know, how that was the approach I took as a father, you know, and, and learning from, you know, what I learned, you know, growing up within the field. It's kind of an interesting, you said things that like to, to become above average at ev- like everything or like, you know, yeah. a lot of different things. Like people always think like you got to shoot for the moon and you got to be excellent, but it is crazy how, if you can be, if you can manage to be above average in a lot of different things, doors will open for you, you know, and then and kind of guide you to the thing that you can be really good at. Like yeah. Well, I mean, look at, average. yeah. So my daughter was, my daughter was, a, she played volleyball in the fall, then she did basketball in the winter, and then she went right into track and she was a hurdler through, you know, uh, power, she was power speed. So, you know, she was a jumper, sprinter, hurdler, but she also did 300 meter hurdles. And that set her, you know, that speed endurance work she did in basketball was great for setting her up for, you know, the 300 meter hurdles in track and field. So everything kind of builds off of one another, you know, and it's just, you know, it just don't, you know, don't be in a hurry. And here's the other thing too, is that all kids figure it out when they're ready. You know, they all, just like we talked about those critical periods, you know, there's readiness too, is that, you know, kids will be ready. Like, you know, I thought my oldest one ended up playing football, but I thought for the longest time he was going to play baseball. And then he just figured it out when it was his time to figure it out. So, you know, don't feel pressured to, you know, like, well, my kid's not performing in this sport. Well, you know what, if he likes it, let him do it, you know, and you never know, you know, what's going to come of that because everybody, everybody evolves and grows at their own pace and matures at their own pace. And, to me, as long as you're there as a father or as a parent to support your child, to me, that's really what it's all about. Absolutely. We got a good question in the chat here from our guy, Chris Armel. Um, he's based out of Virginia. And he says, we have so many kids that specialize so early. And then he says, some kids specialize as early as nine. Do you have any advice for younger coaches dealing with parents and their, and I love this in quotes, 
elite nine-year-olds that are specializing too early. I love the air quotes, Chris. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, to me, I mean, do you have like a, I mean, when you train these guys, I mean, do you have a system of testing that you use? I mean, really what I would do is that, you know, to me, parents always want to see results. So I, I would show them athletic results and I would show them improvement over time. I, I think that's really important and try to explain to them that, hey, listen, the motor skill pool that you're learning is very limited right now. If you play other sports, your motor skill pool is going to increase. So you're not going to actually mature as fast within that sport. You know, to me, that's, that's, it's like getting your it's like going to school. Okay. So we start with grade school and it's very general learning high school, very general. When you go to college, it becomes more specialized. When you get your PhD, it's the epitome of learning, you know? And so to me, that's how I view sport is that you really want to save this the specialization to the, to the end. And you really want to develop that motor skill pool in the meantime. And it, it really stunts your growth. And that's the big thing you have to sell is just really need, you need to be a record with that as well. Yeah, I think that there's a couple of good things that I love you reference like testing. Yeah, Parisi has, a, I think, a really good um, performance evaluation that is extremely multifaceted. Um, it's kind of like the NFL combine in a way, but I think a little bit more generalized um, yeah. and a little bit less on the absolute side, like a five hop broad jump instead of a single broad jump. Um, and I think you're right, like seeing that global performance in a lot of different areas is is visual for a parent so they can see because if they think their kid is the best like of the elite nine-year-old but they have a pretty crummy five ten five you know it shows them that there's there's elements that they can improve and if they can improve in that then they're going to check a lot of boxes on the athletic development scale as well um and then the other thing that's crazy too is you see so many like professional athletes now like elite in their sport like going and doing something else i think of like dk metcalf running the hundred um, and looking freakishly good at doing it. And then, um, like guy like Frank Gore getting in and like, I know it was kind of like a celebrity boxing thing, but he still like got in and like, looked like a boxer, which is crazy. You know, and these are guys that, um, even at the highest level show that if you're just a sick athlete and you train athleticism, you can, you can almost do whatever you want with it. It's crazy. Yeah. You know what, one test I used to use. So obviously I said my, my track and field background is very huge. There's a test in track and field called the Max Jones quad test. And I, you probably have never heard of it, but it's four events. And track and field uses it all the time. So it's a standing broad jump. It's the backward overhead shot throw. Then there's three consecutive standing broad jumps in a 30-meter sprint. And so what I would have, so obviously being involved in track and field, I would have like the world rankings. So all track and field athletes all over the world, they are ranked and they're scored, you know, according to each event and they have total amount of points. So there's a point system, you know, associated with how far, you know, how far you, you know, jump or throw. So what I would do, I would actually test to put everything in perspective. I would actually test my football players. I would rank them according to the track and field world best. And so they could actually see where they ranked athletically, you know, in a power <laughs> speed event, because, you know, obviously football is a power speed based event. So, uh, I, I, to me, I felt like that always kept everything in perspective, you know, and plus that really fit right in with the KPIs of football. It's, you oh, know, you sure. want to be powerful and explosive and fast. So it worked out really well. And that's called the power Jones quad it's called event. The, called the Max Jones Max quad Jones. event, Max Jones quad. Yep. Is it named after someone called Max Jones? Yeah. Max Jones. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Making sure. Okay, Bill should that. definitely know what it is. You can oh, get yeah. Bill's results. Like, I mean, like, I know, like, uh, like Werner Gunther, I think has the best overhead shot throw. Now, obviously I, 
I remember when I was at University of North Carolina, we we just would do like an overhead backward overhead med ball throw. I did it with my players with the Browns. I did it in both cal you know the colleges that I was at. I did it with the Jaguars early on. Obviously, the thirty meter sprint flies in that you know ties right in with all the sprinting you know work that we do. Absolutely. Uh, you know, so it was it's fantastic standing broad jump. And so really, what I would do is that I know now like I'm when I'm on Instagram, everybody's using all these power speed events, you know, to test their athletes with. I mean for the longest time we've been doing this. I mean, why not make events instead of these stupid, you know, make no sense events that they do, you know, how about make events that are actually practical for football to making them better athletes. And so I would use, I would use what I did within our training as part of their testing. I mean, that's, what's important. You know, the big guys, my offensive lineman would do a standing broad jump. My skill guys or my combos would do two standing broad jumps. My, skill guys would do three consecutive standing broad jumps. And so it actually became more reactive with, you know, it was more according to the needs analysis of their sport. So make it practical to what they do. And they can compete. You know, like that's also the, the missing element athletes need. They all want to compete. Right. Um, and, then, and then I would rank everything. Boy, and i tell you what, guys would be peed. Like, and it, it would really fall <laughs> out. Guys, all, all my best athletes were at the top and the bad athletes were at the bottom. And so there was a lot of t- chatter back and forth. You know, that actually might be a good segue into some of the nitty gritty with team training. Um, you know, one of the things that we talk about with team training, and I think that gets team training, I'll say like in, in Parisi land and for performance coaches in the public sector, like it's, it, it can be very financially lucrative, right? If you've got 20 kids paying you 10 bucks, you've got a $200 hour, it's pretty sweet for your paycheck but it, it's really hard, like coaching a lot of people at the same time. Um, did you ever have like any overarching rules or guidelines that you tried to abide by when you'd be on the coaching floor with large groups? You know what? I mean, to me, that's, that's all part of um, maturing within your role. I, sure. I, I think you just, you know, it's the coaching eye. I, I think it's kind of putting guys and putting well, athletes in buckets and if you put them in buckets, you can kind of, you coach them similarly. You know, I, I think that's really important. Like for example, you know, if you have your, and I'm always going back to football because that's what I relate to, you know, sure. you have your, you have your, your sprinting based athletes, you know, so some are going to be more acceleration based, some are going to be more max velocity based. And usually to make the, you know, to make them different, the max velocity guys, you do more acceleration based work with because they'll accelerate greater and they can hit max velocity you know, later on, and then you have conversely works the other way is that the, you know, the people that you need to do acceleration work probably need your max velocity work, but it's trying to bucket people. And then as long as you look at, and I know Altus really talks about this, Ken Clark's going to talk about this. You look about, you know, you really look at shapes, you know, and to me is that really identify athletes with shapes and general movement patterns. And then you can kind of put them in buckets and you can kind of group them together according to buckets. That's how I, that's how I would do things. And that would make life easier for me. Absolutely. That's one of the principles I've brought up this week. And it's, it's like, you're trying to make the group smaller, like by either categorizing or lumping in similarities, whether it be skill, shape, um, profile of the athlete. I find for, for the younger developing kids, you kind of lump them based off of their actual strength levels or skill level in the weight room or whatever you may be doing. Um, But that's, that's, I mean, that's kind of like the big the big principle that I've always, I learned um, from actually his name is Paul Gooden. He's now that I believe he's the strength coach still for the Chicago Blackhawks, but he was the Vermont 
UVM um, like strength conditioning coach when I was like 20 years old. I remember like going to the NSCA state clinic and meeting this guy and being like, oh my gosh, I want to be a college strength coach. And he was like, no, you don't. And I was like, oh, I don't. <laughs> and I I'm like, Paul. I'll always remember that. <laughs> yeah. Paul's a good man. I know Paul's well. Yeah. He's like, you don't want to do this. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this. Are you sure? He's like, no, you don't. <laughs> but um, that was one thing that he talked about was you know, managing, like, I think at the time, like University of Vermont ice hockey, you know, you have like 35 guys, they come into this weight room and, and it was almost the opposite. They have like a 50,000 square foot training space for 35 guys. And you can lose people because it's such a big area. Um, and he talked about how you can make the big group seem small and more manageable. And that's always been, I'm glad that you kind of touched on that, like lumping into buckets. Like that is such a good principle for team training. I think the biggest mistake that our athletes or our coaches can make with our athletes is trying to get everyone to do the same thing at the same time. And it just looks bad. <laughs> just yeah. You, you know, and then, and then you also have to understand the needs analysis of the sport. And, and I know you're dealing with a lot of younger kids, which, you know, need PE class. Okay. I, I get that. But <laughs> as they get older, I mean, understand, you know, there's a difference between, you know, the, the speed-based wide receiver and the strength-based offensive lineman. And then you can kind of, and then naturally they're going to kind of bucket themselves. But I, I think it's important that, you know, when you look at the needs analysis of a sport, there's a fitness needs analysis, there's a speed need analysis, and there's a strength need analysis. And I think that's really important to understand. And then you have the needs analysis of that athlete. And that's really where your precision individualization come in. Because, you know, you know, what's that athlete's, you know, what's his previous injury history? What's his previous training background? What's his movement efficiency? You know, is he an efficient mover? You know, because movers that are efficient actually cost less money, you know? And so it, it's just, um, you know, they're, they they're have a, um, a, a lessened chance to be injured. Um, you know, what's that athlete's lifestyle? Now, this is obviously dealing with the older athlete, but to me, all those considerations need to be made when you kind of put these athletes in those buckets and, you know, and just, and really having ongoing conversation with an athlete, you know, on, on a daily basis, or, you know, whenever you see them on a, you know, bi-weekly or, you know, three times a week basis that you learn a lot about that athlete, you know, athletes are going to be very honest. I mean, they're going to be protective, you know, but you know, the more that you're open with them and, and you know, if they see themselves improving, they're going to be open and honest with you as well. And I think that those are all important, um, you know, conversations to have. I, I was telling somebody this weekend when we were going through COVID, you know, we were a big screen team, assessor guys where they came in. But the best screen that I had was a debrief where I just sat and talked to the athletes and said, okay, what have you been doing? And I would have athletes that would say things to me, goes, well, I didn't think we were going to have a season this year. I, I really didn't do much at all. So, but there's not one screen that I could have did that would have told me that. And yeah. so to me, I, I feel it's really important to, you know, again, to talk and have those open and honest, uh, you know, conversations with your athlete. I think one advantage we've always had as like performance coaches is we can't bench the athlete. Like we almost get hindered more. If that athlete isn't working out, we got more questions to answer from the coach. Mm -hmm. And so it's always in our best interest to put them in a position to do something productive. Um, you know, even if it's meet with a trainer, you know, like it's still something productive with that time. And the head coach doesn't look and go, what is that guy doing over there? Like, what, why isn't he doing something with the group? Um, coach, can you talk a little bit about how you might need, I like the, 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 the bring up of needs analysis. Have you ever disagreed with what a head coach may want or think that they need from a, a team, right? If they're like, how oh, I think our team needs this. And you're like, actually, 
no, it's pretty good there. Like we actually need some of this. I'm like, no, like have you ever had to navigate some disagreements there? I know it's probably a loaded question, but I want to throw it um, out there. Yeah. I mean, that happens all the time. I, I, I just think that, you know, really, you really need to know, I mean, to, you need to be a really good observer as a strength and conditioning coach too, because, you know, coaches are always going to say, our, guy, our guys are in shape. Okay. And that's the first thing that coaches always say. And then you and I, usually what happens is, is that, well, most of them are tired because, you know, they're, they've been, you know, they're, they're fatigued. Mm -hmm. And so how are you going to manage that? And so really, to be honest with you, what I would do is that I would say, okay, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Then go do what I had to do anyways and, and manage from within. <laughs> and I think that's really important is that you just got to know, you, you know, but you get, you got to be right. You know, you can't yeah. assume. And so to me, that's where all, that's really what's important with, you know, the sports science background is that it's a triangulation of what's going on. So you need to have, so when you go to a coach and a coach says that, okay, now that, that's what I used to do. Now I can pull out, okay, here's GPS data. Here's heart rate data. Here's force plate data. Here's velocity-based training data. Okay. Hey, these guys aren't, they're not out of shape. They're fatigued. And here's what's going on because coaches, you know, they're going to believe if you bring a whole host of data, rather than you saying, no coach, I think you're wrong. I think they're, they're really fatigued. They're not going to believe that. But mm -hmm. if you can have, you know, solid, concrete, supportive evidence, they will believe that. 100%. That's really good. Um, with team training, what, what technology did you use? Or do you think is, is easily accessible that majority of sports performance coaches should at least look at using? Does that question yeah, make sense? I, yeah, to me, very simple is, is you know, RPE. You know, I, yeah. I think that is, and it's, and it really, and it depends on the, on the age of your athlete, if they understand that. So I, I was um, at the University of Pittsburgh when I was getting my master's, my professor was Dr. Robert Robertson. Okay. And his, and do, so he was, he was the, the department head at Pitt and who he learned from was Gunnar Borg and Gunnar Borg, as you know, invented the RPE scale. So he invented the six to 22, I think is the scale. And Dr. Robertson invented one, one to 10. So he would tell me every day, he said, listen, you need, you need to learn how these RPEs. I'm like, oh, doc, RPEs, I'm never going to need RPEs. So he made me write a paper on them. And he is right. I mean, RPEs to me are fantastic way because I mean, to me, if you take the old traditional way of looking at training load, you would take RPE times training duration, and then you would get your training load in arbitrary units. So really, that really, to me, lies nice. For example, we use catapult with catapult player load. And so there was a nice correlation between the two. So I could get a snapshot of RPE. So post-practice, we would always get our guys RPEs. And I would go to my skill-based guys because or my speed-based guys because they would tend to lift after practice. And if I was getting RPEs of 7, 8, 9, 10, you know, I'm like going, oh, boy, this is going to be a, a rough lifting workout right now because these guys are supposed to come in and exert maximal effort in the weight room. But to me, I think it really gives you a snapshot of really truly what's going on and how these guys feel from a subjective standpoint. I think it's really important, you know, and that requires nothing more than a, you know, a, a, a pen and paper. I was just going to say, like, is that I mean, that can be as easy as a clipboard by the door when an athlete comes in, put a number. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah. And you can do it in the weight room as well. You know, it's, but, you know, to me, I, I think it's important to, to have things that don't cost money, you know. Um, yeah. and I know other things people might have just jump mats, things, very, very simple things, vertical jump, things, standing broad jump, anything that's going to be, you know, and to me, those are going to kind of be things that kind of are going to predict readiness a little bit, but keep it simple. You know, sports science does not have to be complex. That was, I'm glad you brought that up because that was one thing that, 
I know with our college kids, this was now, I hate saying it, but like pre-COVID when we had our like big robust college program, we always finished our ADW with a single broad jump and just recorded the number. Um, And that way, like it, it was crazy because you're almost teaching. It's like the bring them into the lake, you know, you teach them to fish you can feed them forever. Like if you teach a college athlete, how to understand their body, like you're doing so much. I mean, at the high school level, it'd be even more phenomenal, but we had more consistency with our college kids. They would eventually look and they'd be like, Oh, I jumped a foot further today. Like, how'd you sleep last night? How'd you sleep two nights ago? Oh, right. I jumped. My jumps awful today. Like, yeah, what, you know, talk to me a little bit. And it kind of like, you're talking about like it builds that relationship, opens up the doors and they can, they kind of like have the self-realization of like, Oh, my, my lifestyle really does impact what I'm doing here when it's 4th of July weekend or right. didn't sleep or whatever it might be. Right. Well, I mean, simple things is a weigh-in. I mean, and, you know, just weighing guys in to see if they're, you know, if they're gaining weight, especially like if, you know, you're in like a hypertrophy phase and, you know, my big thing is like, okay, now you guys need to eat a lot. I said, this is a great time because we're doing a lot of work. So make sure you're eating and replacing your calories. And as you know, athletes are all under eaters. And if guys are losing weight, you know, that probably means to me that they're probably, you know, dehydrated as well. You know, the, the P charts when guys, when kids go to the bathroom, I mean, look, I mean, Hey, see your P. I mean, are you, do you have clear urine? Do you have dark urine? I mean, simple things like this to me, that's all sports science. It's just at its you know simplest form. And really, you know, to me, again, it's like, you're saying, I think a really important point is increasing their self-awareness because when you're in the pros, a one big thing that you see that separates you know, professional athletes from younger athletes are, you know, there's, is their self-awareness. And then also the way that they practice, they're very deliberate with the way they do things. So they're very, you know, they're dialed in and it's really important to them. So, you know, to me, the more, the the younger you can teach them self-awareness, the better, the better they're going to be self-serve moving forward. 100%. I, I just want for people who are watching the replay on this is to kind of take away, like if you're working with teams, even if you're doing like you know, group, group training, there are ways that you can incorporate readiness at low to no cost that will dramatically enhance the quality of the team training, whether it be through communication or understanding preparedness, the matching the session intensity to that preparedness. Cause I think that's a lot. Of, I mean, no, I know for me, like I always would find myself like in a rut where I, I, I you know, young coach, immature coach, I'm going to show up, I'm going to give them a great session, but ways that the session could have gone better a lot of times that necessarily isn't a part of the actual tactical X's and O's of the training session. It's the communication right. pieces beforehand data points that you can then relay back to the coach um, who can have like an extended conversation or can be a part of a bigger conversation. Like that stuff is what gets buy-in long-term, long-term. Yeah. And, and the other thing, Casey too, is that I, I would always, you know, always second guess yourself, RPE yourself and RPE your coach to see if you think that, hey, did I underprogram or did I overprogram from those athletes? Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, I would always, after I would take the RPEs of my skill guys, I would ask the positional coach, go, hey, how was practice today for you? You know, how did you think the guys were? And they would give you a number. And if their number was close to theirs, then they had a good idea, then they had good self-awareness as the coach. But if their number wasn't, you know, if that was way off, I'm thinking, okay, well, what's going on? What doesn't he see or, you know, that the athletes experience or, you know, are the athletes, were they, you know, out, you know, running the streets last night? What's going on here? There's a disconnect. So I think that's really important that the coaches are on the same page as well. Absolutely. That's a really good point. I totally overlooked that. It's a really good point. Um, as we enter the, the, the twilight hours here, any, any questions from anyone before I, I have a couple to wrap it up, but I want to open up the floor here. If anyone's got any questions, either in the chat or feel free to unmute yourself and ask. Come on, Valerie. You guys can <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
looking at a black screen the whole time. Hugh Valerie, who's like probably like at work, this is on in the background. She's calling call up by name. Boss being like, what's going on over there? Coach, I got two questions for you. The most impressive thing you've ever seen an athlete do in your weight room. And then the freakish thing, the most freakish thing you've ever seen an athlete do. And I view those as two different things. Yeah. You know what? I, I, so to me, if you look at a weight room, like just, I talk about our athletes, but really what really made an, an immense impact on me was traveling the West side barbell and seeing actually how much power lifters really lift and you know, how strong they truly are. I mean, oh, to yeah. me, it just blows me out of the water. I mean, those guys are just, I mean, they are strong, strong men and it's completely different than football. But I mean, when I look at football players, you know, just being on the sidelines and just and watching the speed that these, you know, 330 pound men move and how fast they move and how they react and, you know, their, their instincts. I mean, to me, is just, I mean, that's what's to me freakish, you know, be, you know, so this is going to take me into the, the biggest, well, I played with two freaks. Okay. But the, the big freak that I played with, his name was Larry Allen. Okay. So with the Dallas Cowboys. So he obviously is in the hall of fame and he was the most explosive athlete I have ever played with in my entire life. Actually, I would hold a bag for him. Okay. We'd be in, you know, it'd be, um, uh, individual period. And I'd, I'd have to, I'd hold the shield and I have to get down and really, really brace because if I didn't, I mean, he would blow me off the ball. And this is just, and he's probably going 50 to 75%, you know, and just, he's getting warmed up, but he, his starting strength, his rate of force development was so incredible. I mean, it was just absolutely unbelievable. And then same thing went for another hall of famer I played with meaning Dermani Dawson, you know, with the, probably arguably the greatest center ever to play in the NFL for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was the same way. And, and what was so amazing about these guys is that they practiced hard as well. You know what? And they played hard. And so, you know, why, you know, you know, why they, they are in a hall of fame and, you know, who they are is, you know, to me, um, direct reflection on how they practiced uh, football, you know? So to me, those are some of the, you know, guys, I don't think, really guys today, I mean, can really, I've had guys that can compare to those guys. They were just, to me, absolutely incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I, I'm just now because offensive linemen and defensive linemen to me are like, are, are truly the fast twitch athletes on the field. If you, I mean, really you look at, you know, true fast twitch. Okay. You know, type two athletes, that's your big guys. I, I remember I had Charlie Francis come into Cleveland. We were brought Charlie into Cleveland and there was this really big guy we had. Uh, named Sean Rogers. Okay. And he was a defensive tackle, probably weighed around 350, 360, just quick as a cat. And he was doing like hurdle skip overs and he was taken back. He's like, Oh my God, who's that guy? He goes, that might be one of the most incredible fast twitch athletes I've ever seen. So really, I, you know, you kind of know how impressive those guys are, but really, I mean, these guys are just one big fast twitch muscle fiber, man. These guys are freaks to me. So kudos that goes out to the big guys that play in the NFL. Absolutely. I mean, anytime you go north of 300 pounds and I mean, you see the combine numbers now, these guys, like, it's disgusting how fast they run. They're running like four sixes, four sevens at 300 plus pounds. I mean, listen, shot putters, discus throwers. I mean, those are the guys now. So, I mean, I'm not, I mean, listen, do I like speed guys? Yeah, I like them, but they don't impress (laughs) me like, like the big guys. You can, you're allowed to be biased. It's you've lived it. It's okay. It's okay. But I do have, so that guy right there, that's Jim Brown. Okay. Now he is my favorite all, he's my favorite all-time athlete. So, 
uh, I because growing up there in that Syracuse area, I, you know, Jim Brown was was the guy. Talk about a three sport athlete, you know, yep. so lacrosse player. Football I was gonna say player. one of the best lacrosse players ever. Ever never knows yep. it. Changed the rules for him. That's right. Yep, I played lacrosse, and that was like one of the that was like the thing. They're like Jim Brown, and Jim Brown, I just pin it to your face, Matt. Unbelievable. <laughs> like would be like like ten years old, be like, what are you talking about? And then every coach would be like, you don't know Jim Brown? It was like a rite of passage. You play lacrosse, you get the Jim Brown story. That's right. That's um, right. Coach, one one question I want to wrap up with you, and and I, I I you know I hope this one can like leave a, a good impact for people listening to this. An act of professionalism that you still remember from an assistant coach or an intern? Give, give me that question again, Casey. An act of professionalism or something that an intern or an assistant coach that you had working under you did that you still yeah. remember to this day. You, you know what? He, here's what I'm a big fan of, okay? Um, I, I'm a big fan of writing thank you notes. Um, I think it's really important because that personalizes everything. Everybody's in the texting world and the DMing world. To me, I would rather if somebody sent me a thank you note, that always meant the world to me. Um, so that's that's what I carry on. So if, if, if I can really um, encourage you guys to do anything. So, I, OK, I, I just visited um, a couple people this weekend. And so I already sent them thank you notes and sent out. Now, I do that because I feel that's right. That's what I would want. You know, to me, maybe. Is it old fashioned? I don't know. But to me, there's just a personalized touch when somebody takes the time to write your name on an envelope and says a personal note. To me, it just means more. So I, I think it's a great way. You have to create separation, you know, between yourself and other people. We kind of talked about that earlier on. But I think you need to personalize that as well. And to me, I think a, a simple thank you note goes a long way. I love that. From a, a guy in the industry of a veteran of 25 plus years, you know, like that's, I think like those are the nuggets that really can, can help, you know, younger professionals, people who are one, three, five years in the industry, like really set the precedent for what to do conducting themselves going forward. So I, I always like to ask that question to, to coaches that have some serious tenure that really is, are, are where a lot of us aspire to be. So thank you for sharing that. You got it, Casey. Coaches in the you room, we got two minutes left here. Yeah, I told you it should be one of the better Zooms you've been on. I Hopefully, you know, it should be a, I don't, a nice you know, conversation. Traditionally, I don't, I, I'm not a big Zoom. You know, I, I, I try to stay off of stuff, but I think it's important, you know, to, um, you know, there's an old saying, what you do for you dies with you. What you do for others outlives you. So I think it's really important to pass on to the younger generation. And, and you know, the other thing I believe is that, you know, I know where you all are right now. And so to me, I think it's important to get comfortable being uncomfortable, you know, because success does not feel successful, it feels stressful. So, you know, just, you know, keep, you know, stay dialed in to your, you know, to have faith and have vision and, you know, and then you just got to keep grinding, man. It, it, it's a hard, it, it's hard, you know, and you got to keep grinding, you got to keep learning and, you know, it never stops, you know, um, to me, that's really what, what, you know, maturing is, is that, you know, really it's, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's learning the most that you can about a profession and, and really, it really helps if you love that profession. And that's kind of where I feel that I am and within mine. And I encourage you all to follow your dream. And, and like I said, find a specialty and, and really in pursuit with everything that you have. Yeah. Coach, you're going to make it back. Are you going to, are you joining a team this year? You want to break some news before we get off here? Nope. I told you I'm on team <laughs> I didn't know. I was really, let's go and break some news. We'll take it. We'll no, take it. I got, I got, I got, no, no. 
you know, may, we'll see maybe eventually, I don't know, but right now I, I'm, I, I love what I do. Um, you know what, it gives me a different perspective, different outlook on everything. Um, and, and again, like I said, you know, I, I'm dealing with 32 teams now instead of one. So it's, it's, it's really cool. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it, and especially kind of where I am right now. It kind of, to me, it, it more completes the circle. So it's yeah. my third career and I'm, I'm Cool. Awesome. Well, coach, thank you so much for making time for us today. I appreciate you. Um, hopefully we can, if you're up for it, we can have you back on again this fall when we run it back. I'd love that. Anytime.